Hey and welcome in film fans, this is the SDFP, the second day film podcast. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday, it is the 1st of March, our second episode. I'm your host Evan Dean, joined today by Brandon Champion. Champ, we've got one in the books, we're still here, we're still doing this thing. I know man, I can't believe it, they didn't kick us off the internet yet. Yeah, we're excited to be doing it, we've also got the popcorn correspondent, Sam Morris. How you doing today, Sam? Another day, Dean. Another day. Hey, we're ready. We've got another podcast coming your way. And a quick note before we dive into this episode. If you missed our first podcast in which we reviewed Black Panther, you can find it on our website or our social media sites, and that's where you can also connect with us. So, Champ, a whole lot of ways to get connected with the SDFP. Yeah, we're on uh, basically every uh, normal social media. We're on Facebook at the Second Day Film Podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at Second Day Film. That's all spelled out. You can email us at secondayfilm at gmail.com. And you can also check out our uh, sort of still in development website. Uh, but it's up there. That's at www.secondayfilm.com. Yeah, a good shout out here for, uh, for Brandon Champion. Champ's been putting in a ton of work on this website, on these social sites. We would appreciate it if you'd go check that out. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter. Right, Sam? Oh, absolutely. And like, uh, like the Champ and Dean both said before me, we are on all these sites. But then again, word of mouth advertising is some of the best advertising, as I like to say. So tell your friends about it if you're listening. You know, Share it with them and get them out there and uh, give us a like. Absolutely. We've got a great episode for you today. On today's episode, we've got power rankings. We're going to dive into our top three films of a specific genre. Today, we're listing our favorite sci-fi films released after the year 2000. We're also talking about the Oscars, of course, the 90th Academy Awards coming up this Sunday. We'll chat about which ones we've seen, Champ's seen pretty much all of them, and he'll give his favorites to win the awards this year. And today, our featured review, it is a visually stunning sci-fi mystery called Annihilation. You guys ready? Let's do it, man. All right, power rankings. Today, we, uh, we're going to be running down our top three sci-fi films made after the year 2000, but to be clear here, we are not including superhero movies. Those are often listed as sci-fis, but... It's really a genre of its own, so we're doing sci-fi films after 2000 that do not include superhero films. And Champ, we'll start it off with you. We're going to go three, two, one with your favorite sci-fi films. So my number three film was released in 2002, and it's called Minority Report. Ooh. This film was directed by uh, Steven Spielberg, one of his, his many, many great films. Um, but basically, this is a movie that stars Tom Cruise, Colin Farrell, uh, Max von Sydow, there's some other people. Uh, it essentially uh, takes place in the future, uh, like most sci-fi films, um, and, and basically centers around uh, Tom Cruise's character works for this unit called Pre-Crime. Beings are in the world where they can sort of tell when people are going to commit crimes before they actually happen. This movie is like a, a visually haunting film, like a lot of sci-fi films. It, it sort of takes place in a, in a time period where it could be not that far away. Um, but it is in the future. Um, and, and this is a film that deals with the classic question of uh, free will, whether yeah. or not we ha as humans control our own destiny or whether it's already set for us. And because these people are literally going in and technically uh, arresting people before crimes are actually committed. So at the center of this really stylistic futuristic movie is this question of 
do we control our destiny or do we not? Um, it's in the basic plot summary that what happens is Tom Cruise, as the main character, um, becomes uh, accused of one of these crimes, and the story goes on from there. But one of Spielberg, Spielberg's best films, and I think one that maybe not a lot of people put up there with some of Spielberg's best, but that's Minority Report, uh, 2002 film. Yeah, absolutely an honorable mention for me. I loved it. Uh, and, and Sam, I don't know if you saw Minority Report before it's on your list, but uh, you've got number three coming our way right now on your list. Uh, number three for me, Dean, um, is going to be from 2001, a uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal. Champ, go ahead. That's not how you say it. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. Um, regardless. I, got, I know where you're going with this one. Um, is going to be Donnie Darko. Um, definitely a, a movie that I didn't see when it came out, uh, being 10 years old. Uh, but definitely later on when I watched it, it gave me a little fright. For uh, for bunny rabbits, I guess so to say. Um, <laughs> That's not a bunny rabbit. Yeah. Frank, Frank the rabbit. <laughs> That's um, great. Reason why this one kind of uh, draws attention to me, um, and when I saw it, is my mom. If and if you know anyone that listens here, even if she's listening, is uh, a psychiatrist, and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal just has a battle with himself inside his own head. People say that the the bunny's the only person, or he's the only person that can see the bunny, and um, just like you know, mental illness being so popular, like and troublesome nowadays it just it really brought to light like what really goes on in some in some people's heads and and it was a battle um i really liked it i liked the plot twist at the end it really made you think it was a it was yeah. a thinker and that's kind of what like most sci-fi absolutely yeah. and, and it's number two on my list oh. uh and i'll spoil it to some degree but not entirely it's essentially when you boil it down you have a story about time travel and it's really a love story between Jake Gyllenhaal and this girl that he meets and not to give anything away but he has to make some choices about his destiny and her destiny and it's really really unique uh so Donnie Darko number three on your list Sam yep. number two on mine champ it was off your list yep uh Donnie Darko like it cool movie just not enough to crack my top three okay all right guys number three for me I'm cheating here I'm cheating uh, I actually dove a little bit before 2000 because it's so close and the movie that i picked champs giving me the dirty look here i i know this is before 2000 but i don't know when we're there are pretty a, simple rules i know there, i know i don't know when we're going to get a chance to to run down sci-fis in the power rankings probably not for a while so um so here's what i've got cube 1997 so donnie darko is a cult classic and Cube is even more of a cult classic. It's it's one of the simplest films um, in terms of how it was made. You basically have a group of people who wake up in this massive cube. And each room contains... Um, it's either safe or it contains traps. And the group of people has to work together to decode the mystery of this cube. Uh, there are numbers... When you go from one room to the next, it's it's really uh, kind of this claustrophobic film, uh, really unique. It was all shot in one room and really simply made, but among those who've seen it, um, it's kind of one of their favorites in the sci-fi genre. So Cube, 1997. Have you guys seen this? I, I think I did see Cube uh, per your recommendation at some point. It kind of seems like one of those movies, and, and you're right, it's claustrophobic, and that's what sort of makes it 
creepy mm-hmm. to think that they're in this big cube and where is the cube? What is going on? Where are they at? I think there was a lot of terrible sequels. This is a movie maybe like the Saw franchise could have taken some inspiration. Absolutely. And, and I think you made a good yeah. point because they came out with two more after the original cube and they started explaining the cube more and more and it got worse. Yeah. It was better in the first one because it was so unexplained. One of the classic cases of less is more. Absolutely. All right, Champ, yep. what's your number two sci-fi film made after the year 2000? Yeah, uh, after, keyword there, Evan. Uh, my number two is a film called Snowpiercer that was released in 2013. This is a movie directed uh, by a Korean director, uh, Bong Joon-ho. I hope I'm saying that name right. Uh, But basically, uh, I'll just read the plot summary from IMDb. Set in a future where a failed climate change experiment kills all life on the planet except for a lucky few who boarded the Snowpiercer, a train that travels around the globe where a class system emerges. So this entire film, super stylistic, post-apocalyptic, Uh, type movie takes place on this train that is just constantly uh, circumnavigating the globe. Uh, A lot of people in this, Chris Evans, San Kang Ho, Tilda Swinton, Jamie Bell, Octavia Spencer, John Hurt, Ed Harris. So uh, a good mixed cast. What I really like about this movie is just the way that they shot this film. This whole thing takes place on a train. So you imagine pretty tight quarters here that you're working with. As the plot summary says, there's this class system where the rich people or the the well-off people are in the front of the train. The back of the people who were lucky enough to just board the uh, train are living in squalor and sort of the caboose and they're all jammed together. And basically uh, what happens is, is Chris Evans decides to start a revolt and the whole movie goes on from there. There's awesome hand-to-hand brutal combat fights that go on within this train as they're trying to work their way forward. And and usually I think that's something that's a really hard thing to film where you're in tight quarters and you're shooting. The editing sometimes can be really choppy. You can't really follow what's going on. I think this movie does a great job of putting you in the action but at the same time still allowing you to see what's going on. And the climax of the film, sometimes films like this start with an interesting premise and sort of tail off at the end this movie really packs a punch and finishes and it has some really good uh themes along the way uh and not not one that enough people have seen i believe it it was on netflix i'm not sure it was anymore but uh that's snowpiercer a 2013 film yeah i saw it as well i did like it sam would you have the chance to check out snowpiercer I have not. No, okay. that's All new right. to me. Uh, I'm going to throw it on the list, though, if it made you know, number two. Yeah, absolutely. All right, how about you, Sam? What's number two on your list? Um, I want to take people to a place that uh, they like to call Pandora. Avatar comes in as my number two. Okay. Big fan of James Cameron. I don't know if anyone's ever seen Titanic. I think probably a couple people have. Uh, <laughs> Leo being one of my favorites as well, but, I mean, come on, Titanic. Um, James Cameron didn't really have high expectations for uh, for Avatar, really. He does now. He's making about 12 sequels. Yeah, no kidding. But something else came to me at the time of there that the the idea might have been um, taken from someone else. Uh, there's, There's reports saying that James Cameron kind of stole the idea but nonetheless he made a great movie if you haven't seen it just the way the film is made um the visuals of the movie it's just it's a really cool concept of this different world um kind of like matrix to be honest like in a sense kind of yeah it's it's definitely uh it's definitely you know a big budget film visually really impressive what you're alluding to with james cameron i don't know if you could say he stole the idea but it's it's a story that we've seen before you know force comes in mixes yeah. with the natives tries to overpower the natives that sort of idea we've seen a lot the world of pandora itself is a very original idea that he yeah. created but the themes i think are sort of things right. that we've seen before and that's kind of what you were alluding to 
Pocahontas, anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so my number two was uh, Donnie Darko as well, uh, which was also Sam's number three. So we'll jump right to your number one, champ. My number one film was released in 2015. It's Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, this yeah. is uh, George Miller's fourth film in the Mad Max uh, franchise, but his first that he released since Thunderdome in 1985. So this uh, sequel slash reboot was a long time coming. It stars Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, uh, and a lot of other talented people. Um, this movie, Evan, I think we've actually discussed this movie before. Essentially, it's one big chase. This mm -hmm. whole movie is a big chase through this post-apocalyptic desert. But the film is so stylish. And the way that it was shot, this film is a technical marvel. And because of that, it sort of makes you forget that you're just watching uh, people drive through the desert and turn around and then drive through the desert again. Because of the way it's shot, uh, this was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, most of them technical, but they also included Best Picture and Best Director. The editing is incredible. It's over the top in a good way. And, and most of the time when I'm talking about over the top, it's, it's it's bad, but this one is so over the top, it's good. The way that the, the, the goons are trying to take out our, our hero. There's a guy with a, with a guitar, and there's like flames blasting around him. Like everything about this movie is ridiculous, but it's so awesome anyways. And there's also some great, you know, strong-willed female characters. And, and I also like how we're just thrust into this world. This arid, I think it's in Australia. There's no setup. Uh, I mean, granted, there's some sequels but there's no setup in this film. We're just thrown right in and then this chase happens. But, I mean, a lot of people love Mad Max. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. You, so you enjoyed it as well, Sam? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really liked it. And you talk about their world. There really is not much of a world in terms of the landscape. It's desert. But the world of these rigs, these ridiculous contraptions that they've created that they ride around on that are, um, you know, stocked with weapons. And it's really an interesting movie. Of course, uh, obviously a reboot off the Mel Gibson Mad Max films. I haven't seen the, the, the older films. They're on my list a long time. I'm guessing there's a little bit more setup of the world in those. So maybe Miller felt like he didn't have to do as much yeah. with this reboot. Um, but anyways, very well received film. Uh, like I said, 10 Academy Award nominations. That's my number one sci-fi film since 2000. All right, Sam, how about you? What's your number one? Uh, my number one would be Inception. Ding, Leon, ding, ding. Leon, That's my number one, too. Yeah, I just, I love the idea behind the dream, getting into a dream, going into a dream to it's make crazy. someone, to make someone subtly, subconsciously make a decision that's going to impact them, you know, dramatically. Like, it just, it was such a crazy concept that they put into a, such an easy flowing movie to watch, but at the end, you're hanging on the edge of your seat, you have no idea what to think. There better come out with Inception 2. Because I need to know some answers. Yeah, I agree. I saw it in college with a college buddy, and I remember more so than maybe any other film I've ever seen, because this is one of my favorite films ever, not Me just sci-fi. I remember sitting back and just hands on my head, like almost mouth half open, like, what just happened? Yeah. What a mind-blowing concept. Because any of us have dreamed, we know how powerful dreams can be mm -hmm. and how deep you can go and what you can do in dreams. It's so crazy. And uh, I love that film. I own it. So yeah. I, Obviously, Christopher Nolan, uh, you know, one of his many uh, great films. That one was just off the list for me. Well, I like a, a part of it, too, was that Christopher Nolan filmed this in six different places in the world. So that was kind of neat how he was able to incorporate all of it into the story itself. and yeah. Rewatchability also really good with oh, Inception. Absolutely. Honestly, yeah, it's a right. film you need to watch more than once. At least three times. You'll miss oh, something yeah. every time. 
And that wraps up our favorite sci-fi films made after the year 2000. Another quick rundown champ at number three had Minority Report. Number two, we had Snowpiercer. And number one, Mad Max Fury Road. Sam at number three had Donnie Darko. Number two, Avatar. Number one, Inception. We shared two of the same films. I had at number three, Cube. Cheated there. It's 1997. I had number two, Donnie Darko. And number one, Inception. Sam, you've got good taste in sci-fi film. All right, now it is time for our next segment. We are talking Oscars, the 90th Academy Awards, coming up on Sunday. So what we're going to do here is we're going to run down the nominees in the five major categories, uh, the best uh, picture category, and then the four main acting categories. Uh, Champ, you of all of us have seen the most films you know that have been nominated um so what we're gonna do is we're gonna get your picks here and who you think is gonna take home the oscar so let's start it off here with best picture of the year call me by your name darkest hour dunkirk get out lady bird phantom thread the post the shape of water and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. We saw the last one together, and I know you really liked that movie. Yeah, well, I should first I should preface this by saying that I have not seen Call Me By Your Name or Phantom Thread. So, uh, you know, I, I can't obviously vote for those movies, but I have seen all the rest. And yes, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, directed by Martin McDonough, was my number one film from 2017. This is sort of the story of uh, fr starring Francis McDormand, who basically puts up these three billboards outside this small town, putting pressure on the local share to solve uh, basically her daughter's murder. Uh, she doesn't feel that he's doing enough. McDormand is like ferocious but sympathetic at the same time. There's a lot of good supporting characters like Sam Rockwell with the performance of his career. Ebbing, Missouri feels like the town just the street over. Loved a lot of those movies on that list but for all those reasons that I just mentioned I didn't have a better time at the movie theater than when I saw Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri and for that reason I think it's going to win Best Picture. Yeah, it, it, it's a quirky movie. Is that a good word to describe it? I mean, it's very unique. The one film that I thought of that kind of rivaled it in terms of small-town drama was Fargo. Yeah, who, also who, starring Frances McDormand. Exactly. It's, it's right up her alley. She just fits kind of these small-town characters really well, and I liked it a lot. It's just a movie that feels real. Like, every person right. in the town, even outside the main characters, um, you know, there's a dentist, there's the guy who yeah. puts up the billboards. Everyone feels like they have a purpose, and everything that happens within the town of Ebbing, Missouri happens for a reason within the plot. Nothing is wasted. I don't want to say it's a perfect film, but it's a pretty good film. Yeah. Like you got to see this. Even if you're not into this sort of small town sort of movie, you need to see this. A lot of twists and turns along the way, oh. that's for sure. It's a fictional world, and it's really unique, though. I think people who live in small towns can relate it to their town. Right. It's not a real place, but it feels like a real place. Exactly. It feels like somewhere where cool. you could stumble onto if you took a wrong turn in Missouri. All right, guys, now we're going to get to the nominees for actor in a leading role. You've got three powerhouses here. You've got Daniel Day-Lewis in Phantom Thread. When's that guy not been nominated? You've got Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour and Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel. Uh, Esquire. Uh, and then we've also got Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out. That was a groundbreaking film this year. And then the last actor is in Call Me By Your Name. Timothy him. Chalamet. Okay, I, I don't know him. I know that film, obviously. Uh, a Best Picture nominee as well. So we've got um, really three 
well-known powerhouse actors and two two young up-and-coming stars. Champ, who's your pick for best actor in a leading role? I think uh, Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour is going to be a runaway winner in this category. He's portraying uh, Winston Churchill, and really that movie, Darkest Hour, is a character study to the max. Mm-hmm. It's dealing with Winston Churchill, an unrecognizable Gary Oldman. Very. Uh, mainstream people will, will know him from a lot of films, but maybe uh, The Dark Knight, where he played Commissioner Gordon. He doesn't even look it's like wild. he's the same. I'm looking at his picture right now it's he, he doesn't look like the same guy but this is winston churchill specifically right when he took over as prime minister which is when the nazis were blitzkrieging across europe um, i'm just going to actually read from a review i re- wrote earlier the film itself is carried by oldman who delivers perhaps the finest performance of his career but this is more than a film about fancy people making big decisions in fancy rooms oldman does a masterful job balancing the outward confidence churchill showed in delivering moving speeches that inspired a nation with private moments of self-doubt and fear he's infinitely watchable as he navigates underground bunkers and dimly lit government buildings, making decisions that would shape the world. So, he, like I said in that review, he just does a great job of doing the outward confidence, but also portraying the inward struggle. And I think the movie does a great job characterizing who Winston Churchill was. You know, a lot of people said he wasn't the best man for the job, but he was the perfect man in that moment. And I think Oldman nails it. And this is Winston Churchill, a character we've seen portrayed many times, most recently on The Crown um, and some other things. There's actually a couple other movies that came out this year. Oldman, I think, will be a runaway winner in this category. Does anyone know if Gary Oldman's a smoker, though? Because I don't know how many stogies that dude put down. There are stories that uh, hundreds of cigars were smoked on set. Well, someone better contact the general surgeon because that guy (laughs) ran away with him, bud. Well, Champ's thinking he's going to run away with best actor in a leading role. All right, let's get over to best actress in a leading role. We've got uh, Meryl Streep. Who? Meryl Streep. She's never been nominated. This is her first nomination. Congratulations to Meryl Streep, first time nominee. Yeah, she's uh, nominated for The Post. Frances McDormand for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, I'd be surprised if Champ didn't give that to her. We'll see. Margot Robbie, I, Tanya, of course, the uh, the conflicted uh, figure skater. Very interesting uh, role for Margot Robbie. Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water, and then Lady Bird. I don't want to pr- mispronounce her name either. Yeah, it's uh, Seorse Ronin. Okay. Uh, but it, there's some, uh, I, that might not even be. You guys name. want me to give it a shot? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to be quick with this one. Like you said, Frances McDormand, I think, is going to be a runaway winner in this as well. Like I said, she does a great job of showing this outward toughness um, and, and sort of this brutal, unforgiving nature within the movie. Obviously, she just lost a daughter, so she's a really tormented character. But she's also very likable at the same time. She's someone you root for. I think Frances McDormand will be an easy winner uh, in three billboards. Yeah, I think she was she was incredible. I have not seen I, Tanya. Of course, that's based on Tanya Harding, but Good Margot Robbie. I would give a second. I would give Margot Robbie second. That movie, she does a great job. She's pretty movie. tough in that movie, too. All right, we've also got some, some pretty familiar names for best actor in a supporting role. We've got Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project. I loved that film. Just loved it. We've got Woody Harrelson. He was also in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Sam Rockwell, also in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. We've also got Christopher Plummer, All the Money in the World, and Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water. So, Champ, who's your best bet for actor in a supporting role? This is a tough category, actually loaded this year. You're going to be surprised to hear this, but I'm giving it to Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards Outside of Missouri. Rockwell's an actor who's been around for a long time. He's been in a lot of movies, great character actor. 
he he steals the show in this one. I mean, he really does. And his character, he's helped by Martin McDonough's writing. Uh, this one, I think his character is honestly the best and what most well-written. He plays sort of the disgraced deputy within the town of Ebbing, Missouri. And at the start, you think you have him pegged as just sort of the asshole in town. But by the end of the movie, the way that his character forms and shapes within the plot is something that you don't really see coming and I think it's really interesting how he sort of interacts with the rest of the people in the town. Again, I think uh, Willem Dafoe is a close second in uh, The Florida Project, yeah. like you said. Excellent movie that people need to see. And not really all the nominees are great, but Absolutely. I think uh, Rockwell's a runaway winner in this one as well. Yeah, I'm quickly going to give a little uh, a little pub for The Florida Project. I love that film. Essentially, uh, it takes place in the shadows of Disney World in Florida. You've got uh, this this six-year-old girl the film is based on, and she lives in this motel. Actually, they move from motel to motel. These run-down motels um, right on the outskirts of Disney World, and it is such a such a genuine, such a real uh, depiction of poverty in the United States, and uh, so eye-opening. It really immerses you in the world. I really thought like it was a, almost a documentary. It was so uh, genuine and so sobering to see these kids uh, and, and the struggles that they go through living in poverty, but also how they make the best of their world. Mm-hmm. And it, Defoe is sort of like the grounded center yes, of the movie. Yes, yeah. He he's he basically manages the motel, um, mm-hmm. and he's kind of the parental figure uh, for for not only the kid but these kids' parents who struggle and they're very young and. I loved that movie, The Florida Project. I really would recommend that. Uh, all right, we're going to jump to actress in a supporting role. We'll just run these down real quick for you. You've got Mary J. Blige uh, for Mudbound. Uh, of course, she's more well-known for her singing, but uh, she's she's been in films and television as well. Leslie Manville from Phantom Thread. Allison Janney from I, Tanya, uh, Octavia Spencer for The Shape of Water. Uh, and then Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird. You know, as is typical, you're seeing a lot of the same films pop up here. Champ, who do you have? Uh, who's your pick for actress in a supporting role? I think of of the ones that we're running down here, this one is the most up in the air category. I think Allison Janney has a real shot. Um, but really, I think this is going to be won by Laurie Metcalf in Lady Bird. She plays the mom of uh, Sarah Ronan. Again, sorry for saying that wrong. Sarah, say if you're listening, our bad. Uh, but uh, Laurie Metcalf is sort of her mom and the core relationship of this film is between mother and daughter. I think what Laura Metcalf does really well is that she sort of does a great job portraying what it's like to be a mom and the relationship you can have with your daughter where it's sort of this love-hate. There's a scene in the movie where they're yelling at each other about where she wants to go to college but at the same time they're shopping and looking at dresses so they're like literally yelling at each other and then they go ooh this is nice and then the mom's like yeah I would I could totally see that on you right in the middle of their heated argument you know and I just feel like that's a really real thing you know a real relationship I mean obviously I'm a, I'm a 20-something guy so I have a completely different relationship with my mom but but Metcalf does a great job of what I wrote in my review that feeling of being fuming mad at a parent but still having a deep love for them that's from uh, mm-hmm. Lady Bird's perspective but the same thing goes the other way the difference between a parent loving their child which most will always love you but actually liking their child mm. you know that's an interesting idea because you're not only going to like what your kid's doing or maybe they're not turning out the way you like but you're always going to love them no matter what and Laurie Metcalf does an amazing job of portraying this throughout the film Lady Bird is a coming of age film that you haven't really seen also one that needs to be seen mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Sam, obviously a ton of films uh, that we've just talked about. Champ has is, is, is made a point to see most of them. How about you? Is there any Oscar nominee, any film that got a lot of buzz that you are just, you know, you're recommending people have to see? Well, the uh, just to go off what Champ just said there, that Alice and Janie kind of had the same relationship with Tanya, oh, yeah. um, being her mother as well. Definitely but parallels. Definitely a different relationship. I haven't seen Lovebird or Ladybird, so I really can't disclose too much on that. But their relationship is a bit unique. Um, I just wanted to throw a um, just a kind of an honorable mention to uh, Christopher Plummer and All the Money in the World. That was a big movie I really wanted to see. He does a great job as Getty. He plays the uh, the grandfather with all the money, and that, uh, let me tell you, money doesn't always solve everything, but it does get you into a lot of trouble. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how uh, how close I can get him here. I'm going to pick all the other categories, too, and maybe if okay. these guys see a little bit more, we can add their picks, too, but we'll put them on the Facebook page or the website yeah. or something like that. And last but certainly not least, time to get to our featured review on this Thursday, the 1st of March. Today, we are reviewing Annihilation. Can you describe it? So we're going to start with our pre-spoilers review. We'll let you know when we're going to start spoiling it. That way you can click out and jump to the end of the podcast. Uh, but this is a really, really unique sci-fi fantasy film directed by Alex Garland. He's known for Ex Machina and 28 Days Later. Actually started his career as a writer, a novelist, and has is, is, you know, dove into screenwriting as well. He, he actually wrote the, the book, The Beach, which was made into a feature film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, but that gives you kind of a base of some of the unique films um, that he's been a part of. The star of this movie is Natalie Portman, who plays the main character, Lena. Also in the film, Jennifer Jason Leigh and Tessa Thompson, among others. Uh, but Natalie Portman, uh, she is absolutely amazing in this film. So before we dive into uh, kind of what we thought about, we got to tell you what it's about. So the IMDb description here, and I'm reading directly off of the website, simply says, A biologist signs up for a dangerous secret expedition where the laws of nature don't apply. So, Champ, let's get a little more. Obviously, that is hardly saying anything. Yeah, that, that's about as bare bones as you can get with this story. Well, and to be clear, Sam, unfortunately, didn't get to see this. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but, Sam, obviously, if you have any questions about what we thought, uh, we'll, we'll definitely hear those from you. Champ, I guess start by describing the plot of this film, maybe a little more than, than that 
one sentence. This movie has a little bit of a time jump in it. It starts with Natalie Portman being interviewed after she's sort of gone on this expedition to this uh, strange place that they refer to as the Shimmer. It's ecosystem that is landed on Earth and that is sort of gradually spreading. And and through a series of events, Natalie Portman gets roped into heading into this sort of Shimmer with the goal of trying to figure out what's causing it. You can see it's sort of like a, an adventure film, an expedition film, but this movie really is like a return to grassroots sci-fi. I mean, this is a sci-fi film through and through. She she heads into this world, hard to explain. This film has some really original ideas tied to it, and quite honestly, it's going to be hard to talk about this uh, without spoilers. Yeah, um, you're right. You know, we're really going to have to to dive into spoilers to to really talk about this movie. But if you want to talk about performances, I think Natalie Portman does a, an exceptional job as the lead. She has a sort of stoic look on her face. She's gone through a tragic event at the start of this film, so she's already damaged goods. Um, but I think she does a good job of sort of showing that she's damaged, but also doing enough with her emotions to carry the film. Yeah, I think a lot, too, is made of her the relationship with her husband, because I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say, you know, her husband is in the military. He actually went into the Shimmer, was gone for about a year, and suddenly came back, that, and, and he, he's totally different. And that's what... Um, prompts uh, Lena Portman's character to find out about the shimmer, find out her husband was there and find out that he's the only person who's ever gone in and who's ever come back. Right. Um, so I guess before we dive into spoilers, the one thing I will say is I really loved the middle of this film. I thought the beginning, it was a little slow, and then I thought the ending, it's just absolutely insane, bizarre, wild. But the middle, once they enter the Shimmer and they're exploring this world and they're fighting the creatures that inhabit it, I thought it was incredible. And I really, really loved uh, that part of the film. Yeah, visually, this film, I think it's one of his strengths is how the Stunning, actual Shimmer yeah. looks. and it, it has a sort of unique and foreboding design to it, the Shimmer, I mean. What it, what it kind of reminded me of is like when you accidentally pour gas out on the sidewalk and you see sort of those colors that's sort of what it looked like it sort of looked like a big blob of that and it's it's sort of interesting to think that someone would have to go into that and then what's going to happen when you're in a world that is made up of that it's got a really unique look to it it's almost like you're on a different planet yeah uh, but you're not yeah that was the first line i had in, in my notes is it was visually stunning and i think whenever a film can take you into its world and you kind of get lost in it you know you almost forget that you're watching the movie you're so immersed into their world um in this shimmer you know it's so beautiful and visually stunning and it's such a mystery they can't communicate back out to the outside world there are these kind of um morphed creatures it, it, without giving too much more away really really interesting and visually at least it was really stunning the music in the movie uh by ben salisbury and, and jeff barrow is also a strong point i think especially when we head towards the climax of the film all this sort of loud haunting horn blows like this synth synthesized settling yeah i think that's the point you know yeah, we're supposed to be with the characters who are obviously in an uncomfortable situation, and the music sort of helps put us in that same sort of feel and view. You know, like, they can set the music off and make us feel uncomfortable, because it is. It's unsettling is the best word. Um, and that only sort of grows throughout the film. Yeah. Um, what One gripe I have uh, about, uh, the, if we're talking about performances, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee plays sort of the, the uh, leader of this group. 
I found her performance to be somewhat distracting. She's supposed to be the leader, the one who kind of knows what's going on. Yeah, there's five women who enter. Right, she's all of them various leading. forms of scientists, and yeah. she's supposed to be leading. She's supposed to be the one that knows what's going on. She's doing sort of this bland, mumbling shtick throughout the whole thing. Um, and, and we sort of find out reasons why maybe she would be behaving that way. But for someone who's supposed to be the leader of this crew that's going into this unfamiliar world, I just didn't find her convincing. I don't think anyone would want to follow Jennifer Jason Lee, who is a great actress and has done a lot of memorable performances in her career. Here, I just wasn't feeling it. The rest of the team made up of Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, uh, Tuva Novotny. They were fine. They're basically playing character types in a certain way. Yeah. Um, but I think they were good as supporting characters. Author Oscar Isaac plays Portman's husband. I just wasn't buying Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah, so if you have not seen the film and you, you don't want to spoil it, or us to spoil it, I should say, uh, click out now, click to the end of the podcast when we wrap things up, because now we're getting into spoilers. Okay, so essentially what we find out about The Shimmer is that it's this genetic prism, and I pulled some of this from some of the, the plot summaries. So it's a genetic prism. So basically it's distorting and refracting the DNA of the organisms within uh, essentially meshing the world together. We see plants that are in shapes of humans, uh, human beings. We see plants growing into some of the characters, one in particular. It's just you, you, you have this attack from this mutated bear that is has taken the voice of a character who he the bear killed, and it's like this world is meshing together. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that was interesting is is, is this, you know, is this annihilating the world or is it creating something new? Uh, well, the you, explanation. Well, the ending is quite ambiguous. Like many science fiction films, they don't. Uh, uh, Garland doesn't really tell us exactly, you know, what we're supposed to think. We're meant to believe that maybe uh, uh, Lena has destroyed the Shimmer, and Isaac and and her can go back and living their happy lives, cuddling in bed. Then there's also a little Shimmer in their eyes at the end. So we're meant to believe that maybe the Shimmer has carried on through the two of them. Um, and ultimately, what we find out is this is an it's it's an alien story. It's yeah. a, it's an extraterrestrial. Well, because that was a comet that that hit this lighthouse where the shimmer started to form. It's uh, an alien story, but it, but it's neither one where the aliens are coming and wanting to destroy us, like Independence Day, or one where they just want to show up and communicate, like uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or Arrival. They sort of just want to be here. And and Lena says, I don't know what they what they want. Like she she literally says. Uh, they're not destroying life within, but they're making something new. Yeah. And I think that that central idea, uh, you know, is, is pretty interesting because if there's a lot of th thematic stuff about cells and how all of life developed. But that's a big theme. Right. All of life developed from one cell. Um, and, and essentially, that's what Earth was from the beginning, right? It was making something new. The idea that we would all become something from one is interesting it's beautiful and terrifying at the same time the guy who's interrogating her at the end says sounds like a nightmare she's like not always sometimes it was beautiful you know sort of idea that things are just creating something new at one point the whole world was something new you're right and, and we see and one of the themes in the film i know you haven't seen it sam sorry to spoil it for you um you see a lot of you see cells splicing into two and what we learn about the shimmer is at its core, um, it essentially takes uh, the person and creates a second person. So we, we find out in the end that um, 
we don't know if Lena is the real Lena. We, we know for a fact that her husband is not the, her real husband. It's, in fact, the doppelganger that was created once he entered this lighthouse and this shimmer and this cave. I, I know that it was ambiguous, and I think you're right. I think my one issue with it was just the ending. It was just so nuts. And she's by herself, Lena, so there's no dialogue for however long. Um... I think if it was trying to make us uncomfortable or feel as though we have lost our minds, just like Lena, it did well. Because I was, at one point, like, really unsettled by the music and what was happening. Did you think it was just... I felt like it was just a, a little too crazy. Well, actually, it's funny you say that because apparently this film, uh, the ending was even crazier. Um, and Paramount, the studio, made Garland and the filmmakers change the ending so that it was more digestible to people. So apparently this movie oh. could have been even more nuts. You say you're confused now. Uh, it could have been even crazier. But like mo like many sci-fi films, I think it's a thinker. I don't know if we're yeah. exactly meant to know what, the, what we're supposed to think. I think uh, you guys talked about Inception earlier. You know, how that film ends is very ambiguous. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of things that could go on... Um, you know, where, where we're not exactly supposed to have a definitive answer. Yeah, you're you know? right. And I think, you know, the ending, I think it was, is it was like I said, it was nuts. You felt like you were almost like, what's going on losing your mind with the character because it was so disturbing, the music. We were just like, we were sitting there like, man, like at the end credits, Linda was still playing the music, like, let's get out of here. Like, this is like unsettling. It's like this synthesized, out of tune Ugh, horn yeah. blast. That is, yeah. I think it's literally meant to make us uncomfortable. Yeah, and I just, I felt like they kept the film together and digestible throughout most of it. And that's what I, and I like that. And then it wasn't like it was unex, uh, unexplained. They were unraveling the mystery. And then you get to the end and it just goes off the rails in a certain extent. And I wasn't crazy about how that happened it's part of a a book series a trilogy and they and they jumped it and made the film before the other books of the trilogy came out so i guess my question is to you guys is like did the, the ending leave in, in room for making another movie based off the second book well or we're led to believe and this is obviously a spoiler um we're led to believe that Lena destroys the Shimmer. She she sets her doppelganger or herself, we don't really know, on fire, which sets the Shimmer on fire and destroys everything. But we do have these two characters, her husband and herself, who we don't know if they're themselves or if they were created by the Shimmer. But I don't know. I did not. I definitely did not immediately think sequel. Not at all. No, I, I suppose there is room for it. You know, we could explore whether or not these two are actually going to go and start the shimmer somewhere else. I don't know that that would necessarily make the film better, though. Like we said before, sometimes less is more. Another thematic uh, sort of endpoint that I think we could touch on is this idea of uh, infinitely repeating. One of the first shots we see is Lena. She's a teacher at Johns Hopkins, and she's explaining to her students how cells separate and multiply, continue on making life. So the, the idea that cells are multiplying from you know, 2 to 4 to 8, 16, 32, 64, it's infinite. And there's a lot of things, like, in the movie that sort of point to that. The characters develop this sort of tattoo yeah. that is a sort of, like, figure 8, which itself is a is a shape that if you were to follow and trace it around just infinitely goes on forever. There's a flashback scene where Lena is reading the book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is a book about an immortal cell line taken from someone who has cervical cancer. So there's wow. a lot of these allusions to sort of the fact that life will go on and continue. Um, and I found that really interesting. It's yeah. it, thematically. Ultimately, I gave it a 7 out of 10 
Champ, I'm wondering what you gave it. I'm a little lower. I, I gave it a six. I thought thematically it was interesting, but like I said, Jennifer Jason Lee's performance was was distracting to me. Uh, her character, Ventress, we find out she has cancer, so you could see why someone like her, who's hurting, who is, yeah. uh, has cancer, has nothing to lose. Or there's another character, uh, Josie, uh, Tessa Thompson's character, who just sort of ends up wandering off and becoming part of the world, who we find out was a cutter, so she's hurting, so she could find this something new as interesting, you know, because her old world she hated. For that reason, and I also think at the end it's a little bit convoluted. I agree. Um, I mean, there were parts in the film where people in our theater were laughing. Uh, particularly when the bear was was, it was attacking, quite absurd and at times. Uh, and uh, the 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 girl was in the bear and she was sort of yelling to the bear. People were laughing in our theater. They had this base of operations outside the Shimmer, right? And in the theater, in the movie, they go to a fort that used to be the base of operations. Why do they keep building bases of operations when they know this thing is expanding? I just you know like yeah. what's up with that? So th these are nitpicky things. Like I said, I gave it a seven because I so much loved really the middle hour hour and 15 it was like the first 15 and the last 10 i really loved the you know i was i was hooked i love mysteries i was so intrigued that's why i gave it a seven which is you know i mean it's it's a solid review but i think what i was most impressed by were the visuals and i think you probably would agree and thematically i think it's got some interesting things to say about human existence sure. and sort of you know the world we live in um, yeah. but you know it's a movie probably worth seeing you know natalie portman is good in it if you're a fan of hers i'd recommend i guess my take on it is reading what i read about the movie before we started this was you know i didn't know what to think it's very interesting it's you probably won't know what to think even if you see it too. Exactly. <laughs> That's kind just of even point. by reading the reviews as well too and it's like it will, you know, it will certainly uh, make so, you think. It's one that's going to stay with you yeah, for a little bit okay. uh, after a while. Um, you know, it, it's a good film. I don't think it's really one that's going to go down uh, through the years as yeah. a sci-fi film, but it's Willingness solid. to recommend. Yeah. Normally, I wouldn't say you had to see it in theaters, but I, think this is, but I think it's a movie that, it, it, because of the visuals, it is so much better in theaters. Garland and some of the producers have actually come out on record and said, we made this film to be seen on the big screen, yep. and that's because it's so visual-centric. And I think that, that if we were going to recommend that you were going to go see it, go see it in the theater. And so that is our featured review of Annihilation. The SDFP collective rating is a 6.5 out of 10, so a good but not great film. So that's all we have for you on this Thursday, March the 1st, our second episode in the books, guys. And, you know, I will say, I, I love the feedback we've gotten already. Thank you to everybody who's listening, and thank you to everybody who's liked our Facebook page. We shot up past 100 likes in just a week, and we've actually been posting polls. We want you to help us pick which film we should see next. And we've gotten some good feedback, guys. There's a lot of ways to connect with us. Yeah, we uh, obviously, like I've said before, the, the whole key to this is getting feedback from people who like movies. Thanks again to everyone who's given us a chance and liked our Facebook page. But if you haven't, that's at uh, Second Day Filmcast on Facebook. You can also interact with us on Twitter at Second Day Film. That's all written out. We need some more Twitter followers. You can email us at secondayfilm at gmail.com. And also check out our website at www. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you at the movies. The Second Day Film Podcast was produced and edited by Brandon Champion. Music featured in this episode was recorded and produced by Eric Baer. The opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the individual that spoke them.